Welcome. You're listening to WO Voices, a podcast series from Women in Optometry magazine. I'm Marjolyn Bailefeld, editor of Women in Optometry. We're delighted you could join us. Welcome. We're here today with Jay Yoon, OD. Dr. Yoon works at Chelsea Eye Ophthalmology, and she's going to talk about the need for for patients to advocate for themselves, the need for practitioners of, of all kinds to sort of slow down and uh, really look at the patient. And this is based on some of the inequalities that she's seen in her years of practice, many of them based on gender or race or issues of, of poverty even. But um, it, it, this this kind of happens across the board, doesn't it? Yes, and frankly, you know, in a in a such an accessible city like New York City, I find it still fascinating at this point. Um, and after practicing for you know ten years in retail, finally coming fully onto a medical side of the field, it's actually more predominant. I see because um, I see it quite often, and. It happens to gay men um, and also young or older females, but I frankly don't really think that race um, really definitely plays into the factor. But the more interesting part was that these patients that I normally see and get brushed aside are entitled to that level of health care so that, huh. you know, they're, they're not living at the level... Be, at the level of poverty, let's say. They are having private insurances and they don't have subsidized care. So if that's happening to these patients across the board as a common factor, then it's so much worse for those patients that don't have that opportunity to seek private health insurances and have more accessible care, not wait two, three months as, let's say, a Medicaid patient. Right. Right. So let's take a look at some of what it is that you're talking about. Right. So I'll start with a, a young female that actually um, was quite active in her 30s. And she had visited two other pretty well-known urgent care centers in New York City. And she ended up in my chair about two to three days after the two doctor visits. They were misdiagnosed and she was given oral antibiotics. And as she was walking towards my exam room, the first thing I noticed immediately was that her eyelid is extremely droopy on one side. She's walking completely fine. Her gait is okay. And the same lid, that eye, is also the pupil smaller. So at this point, I'm, I, the first thing I said to her was, why is your eyelid droopy? And she mm. immediately recognize that I'm seeing the same thing that she's recognizing. And and, it, and when I knew that it was neurological and her symptoms and signs correlated with um, Horner syndrome, which is quite serious in this case, and she heard a pop while she was exercising and mm-hmm. that correlated with the same side and the a piercing headache. Um, and frankly, actually looking back on it, those antibiotics, had she taken them, would have made the situation so much worse Hmm. because that's an inflammatory situation. So she was sent to a neuro-ophthalmologist immediately who confirmed the case and she had um, an urgent 
CT scan, which actually missed um, the actual area. So she had a subsequent MRI um, immediately after, which showed a dissected carotid artery with a pending aneurysm or a stroke. She was basically walking around maybe 24 to 48 hours to go. That's uh, that's that's frightening, and and also yeah. so lucky that she pursued it herself. You yes. know, to get to get a third opinion, <laughs> and that's yeah. really 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 thanked her for. Like, thank you for listening to your body. Thank you for being a good patient, mm-hmm. in a way. And and no, you're not crazy. It's another validation that right. you're listening to your body, and that's also really important as a patient. The second case that was quite dire as well, because that one was quite hard and close uh, to heart. And she was in her late 50s. And I actually had seen her a couple times in the previous to lockdown, saw her for a full exam in January. Then we closed in March. And uh, during uh, from January to June, when we reopened, she went to two different places with this bump that was growing underneath her lower lid so that was Hmm. inside her lower lid and it was palpable two doctors gave her topical antibiotics called it you know an eye infection of some kind in both cases or a mild form of it with no proper follow-up or frankly any answers and also she knew this was hurting and when she sat in my chair that was late June or early July. And so we're talking about six months. And I know that I did not see that. And I had her close her eyes and I put my hands on both eyes and realized one is really palpable and hard, doesn't move, it's not soft. And the look in her eyes and the fear of it, I felt it so much. Mm -hmm. So, you know, without saying oncology, cancer, Mm -hmm. tumor, right? As much as possible, but knowing that she knows what my eyes are saying to her too. Mm. So I'm trying to find her the most expedited ocular oncologist because at this point, if it's that fast growing, we need a full excision biopsy. This is urgent. So at, at the end of that, she knew what was happening. Obviously, we had to explain this. It's an ocular oncologist and um, we need to make sure that this is taken care of as soon as possible. And after that, she had a full excision biopsy. It was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma rapidly growing in probably less than six months if I had seen her in January. So she had two rounds of radiation, no chemo. And subsequently, they found 12 lymph nodes in her pelvic area, which the other doctors actually said wasn't related to her initial condition, which, and her OBGYN also interestingly female, just to point out, um, pushed to have all these lymph nodes taken out. So she had 12 of them taken out, um, biopsied and turned out there were B cell lymphoma undetected and she needed no treatment because it was subclinical. And she came back to me in September. So this is about two to three months after I sent her out. And with two different areas, one completely undetectable. She had no signs and symptoms at all in her pelvic area. And 
She was in full remission, so happy, and with her husband as my new patient. And it that that <laughs> one really hit me because, wow, we all know what would have happened, right, if she had taken those antibiotics and power through it. And I felt so horrible as a healthcare provider because there was nothing I could do during that lockdown. And, you know, it's interesting because we often hear stories of optometrists who make really significant vision-saving, life-saving diagnoses in, in the chair. And it it illustrates how important optometry is as a, as a primary care um, seat yes. at the table. But it's... Uh, uh, these stories feel a little more frustrating because these are people who it wasn't your chair that was the first chair. In no. in each of these cases, it was the third chair that they were sitting in to, yes. to try to figure out what was going on. And and that's you're right. That's really frustrating because they I feel the terror and the fear in their eyes when they're mm-hmm. walking towards me. It's almost like they're on the verge of tears but they don't want to seem like that because they've already been conditioned to believe that this is going to be another visit when you're told it's nothing, you're crazy, just go home and ice it or something. Find that if you don't have the right avenue and you don't know how to advocate for the patient, maybe perhaps it is easier to say, actually, that's beyond my realm because that is really what we're supposed to do as specialists. We are eyes. But when it's beyond that and you feel it and know it or don't know it, the right thing to do is to find out who do I refer this patient to correctly. And that's really key here. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, there's a there's a third case um, that you're going to share with us here too. And, uh, you, you had mentioned, you know, being told uh, you're crazy or you're imagining <laughs> yes. it, or it's not as big a deal as you think it is. And, uh, what, what happened in this one? Well, he was, uh, you know, a, a new patient, a healthy man or well, healthy looking man, I should say, uh, a, a gay man in his late thirties who had just moved to New York actually. Um, and he ended up in my office, complaining of, he literally said the word weird visual hallucinations, immediately corrected himself and said, oh, I know you're going to think I'm crazy because I know I sound crazy. As if he already had been told that because he was frankly told that. And when he said that actually, and I said to him, can you be more specific besides the word weird? He said, they're weird visions and fairy lights. And I swear, this is, I've never told this to anyone, but I think I'm starting to hear voices. And that's when I knew, oh no, this is neurological from something. So as soon as I looked at his optic nerves, they were so inflamed, so elevated. They The vessels were leaking. You could not see any of the borders in both eyes. And it, that one, I gasped without trying to gasp, looking at the back of his eyes, how anyone could survive just seeing fairy lights and not fall down at that level. Hmm. So I knew at that point um, there was something infectious 
that he needed to be treated immediately. And frankly, he received the treatment way too late because of these weird fairy light, ah, it's hallucinations, kind of, you're a bit nuts. Maybe it's anxiety and you need to sleep it off, or maybe you drank too much. Maybe some judgment on that aspect as well, absolutely, given his background. Um, And when he, you know, when I looked at him, before I sent him off to the specialist, I already had a feeling he was going to be admitted because he was that serious. And he wasn't understanding the severity of it. So I said, you need to go home, pack a light bag, make sure you take your ID and your insurance card, and I'm going to call you later, just trust me. And he went, confirmed immediately, and literally he was whisked away right away to the hospital immediately and received IV antibiotics, was such a rare case. The morning after when he was admitted, I already knew he was still there. Hmm. So I went and pushed myself through the emergency room and brought him, you know, sealed snacks to let him know he matters a lot and somebody cares. And I saved that passed for about three weeks. And uh, when he came back, I gave it to him to remind him he matters. And yes, your symptoms matter. Your voices matter. And I'm never going to forget you. So there's lessons in, in here, really, for all of us as potential patients, you know, in, in the advocacy that we have to do for, for ourselves or the, or the people we, we care for and love. Um, and, but there's also, I think, a, a message to, to optometrists as, as primary care people. You are... Um, You've you've developed a wonderful network with with providers who understand that if if you call them, it's you urgent. need them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. And even if I'm wrong, I just want to make sure because I don't want to miss anything. And they deserve that. If they may want that, they deserve that. And I call it closing the loop. I joke all the time. Because it starts here and it ends here. And when you look at eyes, they show so much about the body, not only the body, but the emotional state, physical well-being, and uh, the mental state the patient is in. And Mm -hmm. you really, I see them from literally head to toe when they walk towards me. And I observe them because it already tells me what kind of person they are fear level or anxiety or whether they can even see, then those kinds of things really matter when, Mm -hmm. especially it's a first time patient that you're not quite aware of. And to understand that level of fear, right? When you're being brushed off so many times in, in, you know, like how females have always been quote, hormonal related or Mm -hmm. psychiatric related And even the word hysteria comes from the Greek word, you know, hystera uterus. Just the fact Mm -hmm. that we have reproductive organs means that we're hysterical. And even (laughs) up until, you know, not so long ago, it was actually still a real uh, psychiatric diagnosis. So we're medically defined as hysterical human beings. So how do we break that stigma? 
And the right. role is really, I think, yes, of course, the patient has to advocate, but how do they have the trust and the power to advocate? Right. They need that example, not an example, but more of guidance mm -hmm. and the right avenue and the gentleness to trust somebody to actually know this is how you have to do it. Sometimes it is that way. And if mm -hmm. they don't understand, let's say something's ruled out by, you know, diagnosis of exclusion, you also have to explain why they're going there and why a good news is a good news. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and the point is making those little connections and reaching out to each um, specialist from head to toe and then calling the patient back and then calling the specialist back. I'm, you know, they care to a point genuinely that they will call me and text me immediately after they see that patient and let me know what's going on before my fax comes through hmm. because that's how much I've developed that relationship. And they have developed that relationship with this patient too, knowing, my God, I'm part of this dire situation. This is in my hands now. And that's really me passing the baton and getting it back. And I want to make sure they're okay. And if they're not, I will go find ways to make sure they're okay. Right. And this comes down to really, you know, this really interesting book my husband was reading. Um, and he, I just caught his attention actually beginning of um, quarantine when he was reading this book called Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men, written by Caroline Perez. And it's fantastic. And there's a chapter called Yentl Syndrome. It goes into how clinical studies are based on men. So the results are skewed. Like if you hear about a heart attack, you think of a man suddenly clenching his chest and dying, right? But women right. don't get that. We get headaches, we get mm -hmm. nausea, we have stomach pains. And these mm -hmm. don't correlate with the things we're taught in clinical and in symptomatic um, issues that we're supposed to listen to. So you're right. often told, oh, it's insignificant. It's not common. It'll be okay. So you get pushed back or you get delayed care. So that actually ends up causing them more pain, which mm -hmm. females tend to also um, not really scale on the correct level because we don't want to be misunderstood or judged. So we're more likely to lessen that level of severity, which also delays it. But females feel a pain more acutely, but we also have a higher tolerance as well. So that's mm. not even the same. We give birth to babies. <laughs> so we're mm -hmm. designed to have that level of pain, right? And not that men don't, but just innately we have that. So when you hear um, before the patient comes in uh, that that this is a patient who has is experiencing symptom Z and has been to two or three doctors, you know, how do you keep from saying, oh my goodness, this one's, you know, Actually, I quite, I, I like to observe their history and mm -hmm. I re-ask them because I want to know exactly in their words what they told the pre-testing area versus what they wrote on the form down to me because mm -hmm. the words get a little bit different and it mm -hmm. goes either way, but I try to be more calm in any situation, even when I know it's flaming. 
because that mm-hmm. alarming, um, and frankly, I have really um, prominent facial expressions, which quite help with the mask. But it's it, you know it's hard to hide that behind the slit lamp. But I try to lower my voice, talk slower, and already prepare before I go in there. Where am I going with this, and what are my differentials? And how am I going to calm this person down? So even when I know, when I knew he had to pack his bag and go, and I know, I knew in my 100%, there was no doubt he wasn't going to be admitted that day. I had told him, trust me, just trust me. And I'm going to call you later. I don't want you to Google it. It's the very big thing I say. And now me saying that, will probably make you want to do it, but I really (laughs) need you to have faith in me. I know we just met today or maybe last time, but if you can just do me one favor, stress never helps. And I, any situation, positive mindset is positive outcome in any situation. Frankly, the truth. So I try to leave them like that that you walk away more relieved. And if they don't look it, I will ask them, be honest. What is bothering you? What can I do for you? And when I do say it that way, most of them are honest, actually, about hesitations or questions that they're scared to answer. And Mm -hmm. I I am happy to listen to that no matter what level it is, because their voices matter. And if patients weren't there, would we have a job? And what is ultimately our goal and the oath we took? To take care of them no matter what, right? To the best of our capability and ability. And I take that really seriously. And I think I know that other doctors do. Yes, it's a very difficult field to be in, especially right now during mm-hmm. this terrible time. But And also because of that level of stress, I think we often forget how much pain the patient is actually in. But Mm -hmm. we have to remember ourselves that we are patients too. And one day when we end up in that chair, I want to be treated like that. And that's what reminds me to treat them like that as well. And and I think, again, it is is important to to realize that, that each of these patients had what we would term good insurance, right? Yes, they they did. they all ended up in getting the hospital care, the surgical care that they needed. And imaging. Um, yes. Which right. is really hard to do. So, um, it's, it's, uh, it, it really can happen, um, a- across the board. To anyone. Yes. It's just a matter of who is really at risk here. And we know who, and mm-hmm. I think, you know, when, All of us, even me and everyone around us, if we're conditioned that way in a society, how do we break that stigma? That it starts with every single doctor that can reach to a patient because that patient will reach 10 patients and tell others, trust yourself, believe in yourself. I tell them, you're the center of my circle. And we work around you. We work for you. And you are the center of that circle. Not us. 
And for at least these three patients, and I'm sure countless others, uh, Dr. Yoon, that's, that's made uh, just a tremendous difference in, in their lives. Thank you so much for, for sharing these stories with us, Dr. Yoon. And thank you for the opportunity. It was such a pleasure and an honor. Thank you for listening. I hope you join us again next time on WL Voices. If you'd like to be part of our podcast series, please contact us. You can email us at wovoicesonline at gmail.com or via our website, womeninoptometry.com, on Facebook at WL Magazine, or through Twitter or Instagram at WomenODs. See you next time.